Do you think the front desk is going to be concerned about the microphone? No. Shouldn't be. Look at you. There she is. Hello. My mom. Lillian. Hi, nice to meet you. Nice to meet you, Ben. I've got the questions that I wrote up that I, I wanted to ask you, and so I'm going to pull those out, and Johanna and I will dive in and talk. Okay. Does that sound okay? <laughs> Just don't ask about my love life. <laughs> that is off limits. I wouldn't want to tell my secrets. <laughs> <laughs> no, understandable, understandable. Yes, of course. Welcome to Story Geometry, episode 16, and that is writer Lillian McCloy, who has just published her first book, a memoir, at the age of 90. 90! So there's hope for all of us, no excuses. And the memoir's title? Well, here's Lillian's editor and daughter, Johanna McCloy. Six car lengths behind an elephant, undercover and overwhelmed as a CIA wife and mother. And with that inspiration, let's go back in time, shall we? Today's theme, the 80s, espionage and editing. And it comes to you in three installments. So there I was, an only child in suburban Atlanta. This was the late 70s and early 80s. Black, huffy bike, Atari 2600 game console. And of course, no internet, no cell phone. Perhaps you've seen this era represented to perfection in the Netflix hit, Stranger Things, from this summer. Well, instead of searching for a missing friend like the tween heroes of that show, I was devouring teen and tween mysteries, the three investigators, Encyclopedia Brown, and my idols, the Hardy Boys. Imagine my excitement when all these years later, I come across a book, a memoir even, about a family with that kind of life. The cover company, global travel, espionage kind of life. The life I'd pined for so many muggy Georgia afternoons all those years ago. Now, whether you get teary-eyed when thinking of your 80s glory days, or if you weren't even born yet, this episode's got it all. The challenges of pre-internet literary entrepreneurship, life inside the global espionage trade that led to a memoir, and all the while, the power of editing to craft the most compelling story possible. We are brought to you by Talking Book, the modern audiobook publisher, talkingbook.pub, and in partnership with the Literary Workshop series, Writing by Writers, who is now booking spots for the 2017 Generative Workshop in Boulder, Colorado. The Boulder faculty includes award-winning writers, Pam Houston, Camille Dungy, and Andre Debuse III. Get your future literary weekend set at writingxwriters.org. This is chapter one, Like an Editor. Back in late 83, early 84, San Francisco-based freelance editor Jay Schaefer launched a literary magazine called Fiction List. Alice Walker's The Color Purple won both the Pulitzer in Fiction and the National Book Award. Beverly Hills Cop, starring Eddie Murphy, was the highest-grossing film. Prince's When Doves Cry was the top song according to Billboard. So do you have your 80s groove on? All right, here's Jay Schaefer. Fiction Network was a network before there were networks. It was certainly pre-internet, and it was just at the very, very early stages of the desktop publishing. So it was produced very much in the old-fashioned way. It was an all-fiction short story and novella magazine, but what made the process 
most interesting and unique was that it also syndicated fiction to newspapers around the country. There were lots of literary magazines, but the idea of syndicating fiction had gone out of fashion since Dickens' time. What I did was approach newspapers, primarily Sunday magazines, as a syndicate and convince them that it was okay to run fiction. A lot of papers swore that they would never knowingly publish fiction. Others jumped at the chance to get really talented writers, both well-known and unknown, into the paper. And it was a great success. I think total readership was about 25 million readers. To see what all those millions saw in their Sunday paper, the cover of Fiction Network Number 2, published in the spring of 84, is on storygeometry.org. And if you look closely, one of the 10 writers featured in that issue is Story Geometry Episode 9 guest, Fenton Johnson. Here's more from Jay Schaefer. This was my graduate school, if you will, to get into publishing, to do this magazine. I'd gone to San Francisco State in the master's writing program for a while before that, but the way I learned editing and advertising and paste up and the whole Met agents was all through Fiction Network. And it created new outlets for writers. And my thinking was as long as I was going to find the fiction and edit the fiction, why not put it in as many different channels as possible. So a lot of writers went on to find agents and find publishers. Uh, Some of the writers I would wind up working with again later at Chronicle Books on their fiction. And it lasted from 1982 to 1990. It was a great experience for me and for the other people who worked on it. Fantastic. Well, Jay Schaefer, thanks so much. Thank you. That's great. Here we are, Chapter 2, A code name I'd Forgotten. While Jay was launching Fiction Network, CIA agent Frank McCloy was wrapping up an eventful and challenging undercover career. Here's his wife, and now debut author, Lillian McCloy. Langley had no concept of what that was like when you're in a foreign country and you're supposed to be uh, a family of high income and very, very respected and we didn't have the money to do it, but we didn't have the expense account to do it. It's kind of difficult for me to talk about this to someone that I don't know, Sure. because we were so it was so ingrained in us never to talk about it. Right. Never, except to my own family. We were allowed to tell one person. One person? Yes. Who and did you choose? My sister, Dora. Someone had to know about it in case of I, whether there was sudden death or whatever. For more background, the McCloys started their global journey in 1962 with the posting in Madrid, Spain. Six years later, they moved to Delhi, India, Frank was then assigned to Tokyo, Japan, but spoke no Japanese, so the family moved to the States first so he could take a one-year Japanese language immersion class. And during that year, this happened, read by Johanna McCloy. Frank was the mascot of the class, an old-timer at 40, always charming and funny, with self-deprecating humor that endeared him to his classmates. When a young woman in Frank's class, in the bloom of idealism and spirituality, asked him, What did your experience in India teach you? What did you learn from that incredible country? He replied, always drive six car lengths behind an elephant. (laughs) You have to have a sense of humor to be in that business, and I think we were lucky that we did. Yeah, Yeah, there was a lot of laughter. 
That story was told and retold among the family, and years later, when Lillian started writing, she always believed it should be the title. Johanna recently added the subtitle. The family moved to Tokyo and stayed for six years, so Johanna's older siblings finished high school there. And for their last stop, Frank, Lillian, and Johanna moved to Caracas, Venezuela. This was in the early 80s, for Johanna's senior year of high school. My biggest struggle in life was I thought I was a Spaniard. I really did, because I grew up that way. What was also really fascinating is the transparency of the financial challenges. I was very aware of the financial struggles. I didn't know the specifics, obviously, until later when I knew what he did and why. But it was a real disconnect between the fact that he actually had and carried and did the so-called... That's why I have an issue with cover job, because... He was, he was a full-time employee. He, he was, was doing the job. Yeah. yeah, and the people who worked for him had no clue, and right. nor should they have any reason to question. Right. On the last day, my husband was at age 50 because of the depth of the work that he did. It was very, it was kind of severe. He was allowed to retire at age 50, and he did. And there was no, no flag waving. There was no shaking of the hands. There was no gold watch. There was nothing. It was just then one day he was with the CIA. The next day he wasn't. Heartbreaking. They resented the fact that the men who were in my husband's category had such freedom that they were able to submit an expense account and say, I took him here and took him there. And he could have receipts. Of course, he used the receipts from the restaurants or hotels or whatever it was. But there, his name was nowhere. Right, right. When he was with the CIA, although he did do the job he was supposed to be doing, and he did it well, and he was at one point given a $10,000 bonus at Christmas, and he had to give it back. It's just heartbreaking. <laughs> it was heartbreaking because he wanted to know where it went. It's just such an amazing, confusing, thrilling lifestyle. I then asked Lillian if she was writing at all during this point in her life. No. No. No, I wasn't. I enjoyed writing. I kind of gave up on it, but I, I really loved writing. And writing was just something I enjoyed. And it was very easy to write the book because the plot was already there. Well, I have never considered myself to be a writer, except in my own mind. <laughs> but now, at the young age of 90, you're, you're a published author. <laughs> I started writing, and it wrote itself, and I just kept right on going. I wrote it in a month. In one month? Yeah, and at my kitchen table on a, on a regular typewriter. That's fantastic. I wonder, I always think that people must have a huge ego when they write a book about themselves. But I thought this, actually, I was writing this more for my husband. Right. Because he had never been recognized. When wrapping up with Lillian, I was curious. How do you feel now to have the story in a book form and to hear it read by your daughter? And how are you feeling about being an author? I don't, it's just overwhelming. It's unreal to me, actually. I just hold the book. And I love books. Yeah. I'm in love with books. And just holding this book and knowing I haven't, can't really see the cover, but I'm on the cover, right. it's just wonderful. <laughs> I, can't, I can't explain it. Just feel the heft of that book and know that I wrote that. Thank you again, Lillian. Really, really lovely to meet welcome. you. You're very welcome. Thank you. Nice to meet you. Briefest of Interruptions to remind you that today's episode is brought to you by Talking Book the modern audiobook publisher. Are you an author? Do you want to turn your book into the fastest growing medium in publishing? Then go to talkingbook.pub. 
They produce, distribute, and promote radical audiobooks for amazing authors and respected publishers. Audiobooks like the sharp comic novel Sophia by Michael Bible. And yes, if you mention Story Geometry, you'll get 16% off production costs till the end of October. Yes, 16% in honor of our 16th episode. Here's the thing. People want to listen to your book. You're listening to this podcast. It's a fact. So go to talkingbook.pub and join the audiobook revolution today. So back to family McCloy, Johanna and I were able to continue the conversation after saying goodbye to Lillian. She said the other day that someone told her they'd bought the book and they loved it and they recommended it to somebody. And then she lives in assisted living due to her blindness. And the administrator said he wants to organize a book reading there and maybe even invite some media. And she called me and she said, I'm a writer. I'm a writer. (laughs) (laughs) And in reference to the full-time effort over several months to get the book published. You know, it's just that's why I did this. That's why I did this. This is a gift to her, something to be excited about and something that was her own and a sense of accomplishment. And not only that was just to give to give the story its due and to give my dad his due mm-hmm. and and her because this is a story that's been private right. and it's a courageous story and anybody who has read it especially going through the India section will say wow you know I can't believe what she endured and how she endured and good for her and she hasn't heard that because no one's known right well, we've talked about it enough to give you a taste. Let's hear an excerpt from Six Carlings Behind an Elephant, Undercover and Overwhelmed, as a CIA wife and mother. This section set in those glorious 80s. Reading again, here's Johanna, and this excerpt, along with links to buy the book, will be on storygeometry.org. This is a story titled The Vigil. One night after we had been in Venezuela for a few months, Frank had a meeting in a small hotel with an agent. Per usual, I expected him home no later than 11 p.m. It was very late and there was still no sign of Frank. I felt a stirring of apprehension and I began to watch the clock. At 2 a.m., I began to worry. I couldn't sleep. So I got up, I made tea, and I sat on the balcony where I could see the winding drive that came up the hill to our building. There was almost no traffic on the street. Another hour went by. Johanna appeared at the balcony and asked if everything was all right, and I said no, I was worried. She joined me with a cup of tea, and we both set our eyes on the road. When I thought about the Venezuelan police, I didn't even want to imagine how they would treat someone like Frank. I was beyond grateful that Johanna could understand my situation. It was such a comfort. She asked me if I knew where he was that night, or who he was meeting, if I had any reason to be particularly concerned about this evening. I told her that I knew he was always on high alert about possibly being followed by the KGB. We fell silent. I didn't know whether I should call Frank's case officer at home. I didn't want to disturb him until at least dawn. Johanna asked about the protocol, and I told her that there was a code, code words we were supposed to use in these situations. She urged me to do so, but I waited until the sky became light. When I checked our address book, I saw that Frank had never written the number there. It was probably under a code name I had forgotten. I called information, and to my surprise, the number was listed. I called, and his sleepy voice answered. Riddled with adrenaline, I cryptically tried to explain who I was by using Frank's code name. 
It was instantly obvious that he had no idea who I was and didn't know the code name. I couldn't chance saying anything more in case the phones were tapped, so I said I would call him later at the office. Hmm, he said. It was time for Johanna to catch the bus to school, and I insisted that she get on it. I wanted things to look as quote-unquote normal as possible. Johanna wanted to stay home, but I argued with her. She said it wasn't fair to expect her to act normal and go through a whole day at school knowing her dad was missing and not being able to talk about it with anyone. I promised I would call the school under whatever pretense to alert her with any update. She reluctantly agreed, fighting yawns as she rushed out the door to get to the bus on time. Not 30 minutes after Johanna left, I heard the private elevator kick into gear. It opened directly into our living room, so I stood in front of our door and I waited. It stopped on our floor, the doors opened, and there was Frank. He was filled with remorse because he realized how frightened I must have been. He had been taking an antihistamine for allergy, which made him drowsy. When the agent left the room, he started making notes about the meeting, and he took the medication along with a drink, and he fell asleep through the night, accidentally. He had no resistance to medication, but alcohol didn't help. I was furious. I called the school and I asked to speak to Johanna. They took her out of class and brought her to the phone in the principal's office. I said, Daddy's home. He's okay. We'll talk later. I don't know what she told the principal about why she had to take that call. I thought about all the married women who only had to be worried about their husbands getting drunk and having sex with a wicked woman. Did they know how lucky they were? That's fantastic. Thank you so much. Thank you. This is Story Geometry, the 80s, espionage, and editing. And we'll wrap up our tour of the 80s here in Chapter 3, Food and Focus, with more from editor Jay Schaefer on his work helping shape a best-selling memoir. Jay, 22 years of Chronicle Books, amongst many other accomplishments. What, what's your perspective on your time there? When I was hired in 1987, I was the Books with Words editor. Chronicle had been primarily a visual books publisher, and they wanted to get into books with more content and also to originate more books. So that was my task when I started. And what I'm particularly proud of was launching the fiction list and the memoir list and also a mystery list, all of which were little entrepreneurial efforts within Chronicle Books, which grew from 19 employees to 150 employees during the time I was there. So in 1987, I was reaching the end of high school. A Summons to Memphis by Peter Taylor won the Pulitzer in fiction. Three Men and a Baby was the top-grossing domestic film. And the number one song... Yes, Walk Like an Egyptian the 80s. So later, Jay gave a talk to the Writing by Writers workshop attendees, and he shared this story about editing a memoir, which you probably heard of. One of the books I worked on at Chronicle when we were launching the memoir list was Under the Tuscan Sun. Written by professor and poet Francis Mays, Under the Tuscan Sun, At Home in Italy, was her first narrative book. Soon after release, it shot to number one on the New York Times bestseller list and lived on the list for two straight years. In a lot of ways, that's a good model for a memoir because it doesn't tell a person's whole life. It focuses on a particular experience. And 
takes an unusual tack towards solving that. It's a midlife experience by a woman who's, who's gone through a divorce and now she's changing her life. So she's rebuilding a villa in Italy, which is a fantasy that writers can, people can relate to, not just writers, but readers. And she's an expert cook. And these are wish fulfillment popular subjects. So you didn't hear about her growing up in Georgia. And you really didn't hear why she went through a divorce or how terrible her husband was. One little line that when she separated. And she found what the story was about. And a lot of the work in developing that book was in leaving stuff out and not putting it in. And thinking about six car links, credit to writer Lillian and editor Johanna on keeping that book focused on the global CIA years. They didn't include Lillian's time as a big band jazz singer in San Francisco before marrying Frank, or years later, the loss of her home and possessions in the 1991 Oakland Hills fire. But let's get back to Jay and Under the Tuscan Sun. Francis was a poet and hadn't written any narrative before the book. And the, the book was sold on the basis of a proposal which consisted of three articles that had appeared in different magazines on unrelated things. And there was a, a rough outline. A lot of the process of writing the book, the book was written after the deal was done. And so there's a lot of question of what should the book be. And in that course of the time between when the book was signed up and it came out, there were these reviews of other books that said, God spare us from another expatriate American rebuilding a villa in Italy or rebuilding it in France. So all of a sudden we had signed up this book that the reviewers were saying, enough of this genre, we're completely tired of it. And that also was a factor in figuring out how to shape the course of the book. And I won't go into all the details, but two of the things that Francis did was keep food primary, including recipes in the book, which was something different for, for a memoir. And it helped flesh out the, the sense of the place and the atmosphere, and you could taste the food. And the other thing that was, was a real struggle at times between us was to keep the story tight to that one experience and not include all her drives through Italy and all her visits to other countries and just kind of the, the drive-by memoir, but to keep it on the experience of this villa. In thinking about focus, Lillian, Johanna, and I talked about the frame of telling the global espionage story from the spouse's point of view. Unlike most CIA memoirs and, of course, spy fiction, Six Car Links isn't about the secret agent trade or the cases or the work. Instead, as you've heard, it's about navigating the family challenges and experiences of the lifestyle. Well, once again, here's Jay. And I think that helped create the sense of place and story and really made it easy for people to, to understand the story. It also started out as one year. It didn't make any sense to try and tell a year in the life, so we just opened it up and told what had to be told over the however many years it took to develop it. To wrap up our chat, I asked Jay more background on his approach, working with such a broad range of writers, books, and genres. Every project is different, every writer's different. That's what I like about it. That's why I don't get bored. Not just the subject matter of the book that changes, it's, it's the writer and the writer's approach. I don't think there's any formula or any magic. I think the process is the same in what's the writer trying to say, how well are they saying it, how can they make it better? And uh, whether it's fiction or nonfiction, that's what you go through. I think you look at what every writer wants to do with their book, 
and what every writer can do. And the, the main thing is to be true to the writer's vision of the book, to help the writer achieve what they're trying to do as best they can. The writer has certain expertise and, and you've got to figure out where, where can this story go within what the writer is trying to do and is, and is able to do. And that's the skill of a good editor. And I think what editors should do is be invisible. The book is not about the editor. I can write my own book. The book is about the author. Yes, it's about the writer. So we're less than 30 days away from the 2016 election. If you seek liberalization, come here to this gate. Mr. Gorbachev, open this gate. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. As you may know, I'm curating an election year lit list. These are works by, about, or influenced by presidential election cycles. I am fascinated to know what pieces of literature are going to come from this election cycle. So as we look back in time for another election year lit option, like last episode, Johanna McCloy stayed in the visual space with a film recommendation. The Candidate. Ah. Yeah. yeah. That was really good. That stands the test of time, by the way. Campaigning. Mm -hmm. And it's the real everyday guy versus, you know, the smooth talker and Robert Redford's in it. And it's about integrity versus, you know, shtick, basically. Politics, yeah. <laughs> in a nutshell, right? Indeed. Well, thanks for listening to episode 16, the 80s, espionage and editing. Tremendous appreciation to guests Jay Schaefer, Lillian McCloy, and Johanna McCloy for their insights and experiences. Don't forget to sign up for future literary workshops at writingxwriters.org and get your own audiobook discount. Just visit talkingbook.pub and use that code STORYGEOMETRY. Why not find me on Twitter, at Ben Hess, and also at STORYGEOMETRY on Twitter and Facebook. Thanks for listening. 